National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Throughout the history of this show, we've occasionally tackled the topic of leadership in national security. It's usually as a tangential topic from among our many guests who were holding or held senior leadership positions across the American national security arena. We have a very special guest for you today, someone who has achieved the pinnacle of leadership and leads from the front every single day. Our guest is Joanne Bass, and let me tell you a little bit about the role she plays. Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, represents the highest enlisted levels of leadership and as such provides direction for the enlisted force and represents their interests to the American public and to those in all levels of government. She serves as the personal advisor to the Chief of Staff and the Secretary of the Air Force on all issues regarding the welfare, readiness, morale, and proper utilization and career progression of more than 600,000 airmen in the United States Air Force. Chief Bass is the 19th Chief Master Sergeant appointed to the highest non-commissioned officer position in the United States Air Force. Chief Bass was raised as an Army dependent living in several overseas and stateside locations prior to entering the Air Force in 1993. Throughout her career, she has held a variety of leadership positions, serving at the squadron, group, wing, and major command levels. She has significant joint and special operations experience and has participated in several operations and exercises as well as deployments in direct support of Operations Southern Watch, Enduring Freedom, and Iraqi Freedom. Prior to becoming the U.S. Air Force's Senior Enlisted Advisor, Chief Master Sergeant Joanne Bass served as the Command Chief Master Sergeant of the 2nd Air Force out of Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi. Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much, John. It is really a treat. Um, I, I love it because we're just coming off of a high of celebrating our nation's independence. Um, and so to come and be here, I know the audience can't see us, but I'm here in my office at the Pentagon and just feeling super excited about being an American, first and foremost, and very excited to spend time with you, even though you're, you're Navy, prior Navy, sir, it's, it's all good. It's one team, one fight. And so, sir, to you, thank you for your service. <laughs> you bet. Uh, let me begin our discussion today by learning a little bit about, about you, uh, Chief Bass, your path, the journey you've been on throughout your career. I, I think your answers to some of these early questions uh, will help us to better understand your priorities in your current position as Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force. I'm going to use the term you grew up as an Army brat, uh, yet you chose to join the U.S. Air Force. Uh, what, what drew you to serve the United States military yourself, and why the Air Force as your service of choice? Well, well a few things. One, I, I have known nothing but service my entire life, right? Um, growing up as an Army brat, as you shared, um, you know, I got a chance um, to watch my dad every day, get up at like four o'clock in the morning, 
to PT. And, you know, as a teenager getting up, you know, seeing your dad get up at four o'clock in the morning, I thought there is no way. <laughs> and so um, what, what I did know is I wasn't quite mature enough to go to college when, when you know, I grew up old school, like some of the audiences there where, where you knew when you graduated high school, you had to go or like somehow you had to figure out life. And so I knew I had to figure out life. I wasn't mature enough to go to um, college. I don't know that my parents would have paid for that. And so I remember my dad always saying four years in the military never hurt anybody. And so, so it was really because of that, that I thought, well, let me try the United States air force. Um, in fact, well, let me, let me tell you, I, I remember walking by a uh, Marine Corps um, table one time where there were some Marine recruiters at a career fest and, and at this career event, they, they looked at me and I said, hey, let me know about the Marines. They're like, we're not hiring. And so um, so anyway, it was pretty evident, right? Like Air Force was for me. And I thought I'd do four quick years, get my GI Bill, figure, grow up a little bit and figure out life. And I'll tell you, um, the, the Air Force has given me way more than I've ever given it. Um, never did I think... John, can you hear me still? Yep, yep. We had a, oh, there we go. Now we're now, okay. Yeah, we had a little Fantastic. short break in the audio, and now we've got your video as well, so that we're good to go. Wonderful. I think it was Pentagon stuff. So anyway, so never, never did I think I'd be serving in the Air Force for over thirty years. But I'll tell you, um, it, you know, the Air Force has allowed me to see things that I never would have had an opportunity to see, um, and and it's given me such an amazing life. Um, and the, being able to wear our nation's cloth, there is no greater purpose. Uh, so if we do the math uh, and consider that you joined the Air Force in 1993. That would you mean you've been on active duty for uh, almost 30 years? Are we approaching that 30-year mark? Uh, that's a that, lengthy – go ahead. Sorry. That, that is really tough to understand because I still feel like I'm 29. So, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that's possible. I understand. Uh, it's a lengthy career of service to America. You, like you said, you've been serving your whole life. Uh, but for your personal career path, uh, you've served in very senior leadership positions in the non-commissioned officer ranks. Uh, and you currently serve as the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. Uh, can you please yes. explain to our listeners what that position is, how it functions within the Air Force, and how that position serves both the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief of Staff of the Air Force? A absolutely. I, you know, when I talk to um, our public, what I really share with them is I am the advisor to the Secretary of the Air Force, to the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, um, and advising them not just on um, the enlisted force proper. I tell people all the time, I'm not just the chief to the enlisted force, while um, I'm certainly honored to do so, but I represent, in my mind, our officers, our civilian teammates as well. It takes one team to be able to do the things that the Department of the Air Force has to do. And so I um, act as their advisor, and I advocate on the behalf of the force to um, our elected leaders. I advocate to the general public and, and to um, all that needs so. And so just being able to represent our over 689,000 uh, members that serve in the Air Force that make us so great is really what, the, what I have a chance to do. And, and being able to spend time with our airmen across the globe is, is what helps me um, provide the best military advice to um, the secretary and to the chief. Uh, if I could just ask uh, maybe a couple of follow-up questions. Could you sort of explain what the structure is there in the Department of the Air Force? You have the secretary of the Air Force with the secretary's own staff, 
And then you have the chief of staff of the Air Force who runs the kind of the military side of the Air Force. Is that right? Could you sort of explain how those two staff structures relate to one another? So absolutely, as you just said it right there. So you have the secretary and now we have two forces, by the way, within the Department of the Air Force. You have the United States Air Force and you have the United States Space Force. And so both of the chiefs of staffs of those organizations run the military side of their respective force. Um, and then underneath my boss, then you have the office of the chief master sergeant of the Air Force as well. Um, and, and I have my team that helps us do our part of advising on um, the military aspects of what is going on and providing the pulse of the force to my boss and, and as well as the secretary. So I do want to follow up a little bit later in our conversation today about that relationship between uh, the Air Force and the Space Force being two services inside the Department of the Air Force. But uh, right now I want to focus on some other topics. Uh, Chief Basker, perhaps I can ask you a bit about the most important leadership lessons you learned as you were promoting through the ranks of the U.S. Air Force. Maybe you give us uh, two or three specific situations that, uh, that you experienced uh, that, that really taught you the importance of leadership and how to be a good leader. You know, I, I'm glad that you said most important because it's really hard to, to, to sh I, I, I learn a leadership lesson every single day um, throughout my career, but I, I'll just name a few. First is my very first supervisor that ever I had over 30 years ago was a senior airman, Brian Hurley. Um, he, that's an E4 in the military. You know, again, I joined the military to just figure out life. I wasn't the most studious person nor the most disciplined person. And, and I came at, into the 74th Fighter Squadron, and right off the bat, he shared with me the high expectations that he has of me as his subordinate. Right. So and I and I did not appreciate it at all um, at that time. In fact, I thought he was kind of a jerk. Right. He was really. But he wasn't. He was simply giving me expectations that he has as my supervisor to do my job and do it well. And so he taught me valuable leadership lessons, you know, he, he you know, on on um, not to settle for just status quo and not to do the just bare minimum but to actually really work hard and, and, and to be, and to have that sense of pride in wearing my uniform and how my uniform needed to look and how I can present myself in a military image. And so I learned some really tough lessons from that very first supervisor. And then fast forward a few years later, and um, I, I got assigned to, or got selected to serve under the Air Force Special Operations Command. And working in that command taught me a very valuable lesson. One, there were too many leaders that were just amazing that I learned from. But what I learned from them, I saw for the very first time a more junior NCO um, speak truth to power to an officer. And being able to do that taught me that you can say anything that you want to say. You just have to think about how and when, and have the wisdom to know when. And, and it, whether it's contradictory or not, whether it's, you know, a, a tough situation or not, you know, every one of us as, as subordinates or as wingmen or as, as people have an opportunity to say anything we want to say. We just have to have the wisdom not to, or the wisdom when to. And then the third example I will share is later on in my career, as I was a wing command chief, I watched um, a wing commander of my of mine, uh, Major Michael Downs, and he always took time in the beginning of his day. He he had this time on his calendar, and you couldn't interrupt it, and it was just like 
you know, space, there, he, he, he space blocked his calendar. And I, I would always ask him, sir, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm thinking, right? Like, so, so he blocked time in his calendar every morning to just think. And so that was a valuable lesson on how one of the probably most underappreciated things that we have to do is really make sure that we have time to think about the things that we're doing. And so I learned a great leadership lesson then. I think what I just heard from you is that you have been a a lifelong student of leadership. And I think uh, the best leaders in the military, best leaders in any field are people who are who understand that they have to be lifelong students as well as practitioners of leadership. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I, you know, in fact, I make it my goal every single day to learn something. Um, and, and so I believe we've got to be lifelong learners, learn something. You're never too old to learn and you're never too young to lead. There you go. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Joanne Bass, who is currently the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force. We're discussing military leadership, among many other topics. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, we were just talking about some of the key leadership lessons you learned as you promoted through the ranks in the U.S. Air Force. As the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, responsible for representing some 600,000 airmen across the service, what is front and center on your mind these days? What key issues have your primary attention right now in support of the airmen you represent as you serve on the Air Force staff? There are many key issues, John, that I'm focused on, but I'm really focused on the force of the future. Um, This year, our nation is celebrating 50 years of an all-volunteer force. And so my goal as the Chief Master in the Air Force is make sure in five years from now we're celebrating an all-volunteer force, and in 10 years from now we're celebrating an all-volunteer force. But that's just not going to arbitrarily happen. Like, we've got to make sure that people understand what it means to serve. And so there's some things within that um, that within that within um, spectrum of force of the future that really does matter to our service members, whether it doesn't matter what service you're in. And that is paying compensation. That is health care. We tell America's moms and dads, hey, send your children to come serve in the military and we will take care of those things. And so um, I, I'm putting a lot of brain cells to that pay and compensation and to that health care piece to better advocate for our service members and their families and all veterans um, that, that um, need a voice. And and I would tell you, that, you know, that was my experience as a as an officer in the Navy. Is that the two most important things you have to address for sailors, for for airmen, is uh, if they're not getting paid properly, if they're not getting the compensation that they they're supposed to have for housing allowances and whatnot, uh, that becomes yeah. their most important issue of the day. It, it actually interferes with their ability to do their job in some ways. And then, of course, uh, taking care of your your personnel. On the medical side, if we don't have a healthy force, we can't. Uh, we're, we're not prepared to fight. Are there any other issues that are uh, front and center of your mind when you, when you consider? Absolutely. So re- recruiting and retention is, is absolutely one of them as well. Again, that ties back into being able to um, field a force of the future and have enough service members who are willing to wear our nation's cloth to defend our nation. So let me ask you this. I, I, I read, I try to keep up on uh, on everything that's going on in the national security arena. One of the big issues is that we, we have, uh, you know, transition from one generation to the next 
sort of a change in personality of, of, of the young people coming out of high school. Uh, are you seeing any kind of differences in the, in the young people joining uh, the services today uh, than we had, say, 10 years ago or 10 years before that? Uh, I mean, what, what, are the, what are the key things that they are seeking when they join the Air Force? Yeah, so so absolutely, I'm seeing a difference in, in the people who um, are in the workforce today. But I would say that that was said 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. When I joined the Air Force, right, like Senior Airman Brian Hurley probably thought we were going to hell in a handbasket because of airmen <laughs> like me. And so that is that. So that's, I think, an important thing, right, as we talk about this future generation. And I do a lot of studying on Generation Z, by the way. I'm reading an excellent book called Generation Z Unfiltered. And and what it teaches us is uh, today's um, today's young airmen want to serve. They just want to serve in their own way. And so the things that value, you know, brought value to you or me are probably different for this generation. And I think we all see it in whatever workforce. And so we've got to change the way that we manage talent in the service. We have to reimagine, if you will, um, what that force of the future is going to look like. I don't think that, you know, there's good or bad. It is just, we've got to, continue to evolve the way that um, that that we um, have policies in in the Air Force to be able to attract this generation and be able to retain them. But I'll tell you, this generation is actually the most talented, most educated, most capable force. They're super creative. If we'll only tap into some of those talent sets and allow them to help us uh, creatively and critically um, think, we'll be able to get through any challenge that we're going to have in the future. And, and would you say, Chief Bass, that the, because uh, technology is changing so quickly, uh, I mean, year to year, it's amazing to me how fast we're advancing in different technology areas, including uh, throughout capabilities in the military, that these young kids that are that are joining the services today, I mean, they've grown up knowing nothing but the Internet and social media, and they're so savvy when it comes to what's happening on the web and using that technology. Is that, yeah. That's a strength for the services, isn't it? It is absolutely a strength. If we'll only make sure that we, we do not allow bureaucracy to keep them from being able to do their job well, right? Like, it is absolutely when, – when I spend time with some of our cyber professionals and our – and our Intel airmen, I mean, the way that their brain thinks into the speed and scale that it can think, again, and the way that they can capitalize on, you know, um, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, like the way they're able to do that compared to somebody like me, right? Like, again, we, we've got to be able to use that as a strength, especially, um, John, if I can just say, right, when, when we were serving, we were really focused on um, three war fighting domains, if you will, you know, air, land, and sea, you had to be good in, in all of those things. But now we have other domains called space, cyber, and information. And I would offer to you that if we lose in any of those last domains, space, cyber, information, we can't even generate air power. Mm. And so this is where we've got to tap into the skill sets of, that this generation brings, and they are super smart and, and strong in cyber and information. Uh, you mentioned about uh, force generation. That, that's one of the uh, the key things that the Air Force has been working on. I, I would have to imagine that in your role, uh, you talk a lot to the, uh, to the airmen across the total force 
about this certify, prepare, available to commit, and and the reset factors in Air Force Force Generation. Is that is that right? We do, we do. We're um, you know as it pertains to how we present the forces, um, that is absolutely what we're focused on on how we present the fo- forces to the joint force, and then um, present us present ourselves and able to you know in, in a way that we're able to. Um, just continue defending our nation again. And that's part of, you know, we will never fight alone. We've got to fight with our joint partners, our uh, allies and partners. And so how we um, integrate all of our capabilities is super important. And if I could uh, continue on this uh, discussion on the leadership side of things, standards matter uh, across the services. We we want to hold all of our personnel to the highest possible standards uh, you released a, a, a letter uh, to your airmen across the force on the 20th of June talking about standards. What, what was the mission behind that? What were your concerns that you wanted to address? Yeah, um, thanks for bringing that up. You know, really, as I release letters to the force or memos to the force, it's just me being able to have an opportunity to communicate. And I want, I thought, I think it's important that they know what's on my mind and standards to your point, are always on my mind, especially, you know, whether they're small standards, big standards, right? And that is a very broad term and a very broad um, word, right? Like, um, but I think that all of them matter. How you do anything is how you do everything. And so um, if you have pride in, in who you are as an airman, if you take pride in your uniform, if you take pride in your customs and courtesies, if you take pride in the discipline that we appreciate and that sets us apart as a military, um, those things all matter. And they and it's the little things that will lead up to the big things. And I'm reminded of some challenges that we had in the early 90s where we started to have lapses in standards and people around um, others knew and, and those lapses of standards led to aircraft incidents, which were big standards. And those big standards lead to loss of life. And so um, as the chief master in the Air Force, I felt like it was important to just share broadly. There is not one thing that led me to write that letter. It was really, hey, teammates, right, we, we kind of need a vector check. And we need to remind ourselves that, that in this particular profession, which is the profession of arms, um, and it's an all-volunteer force, we hold ourselves to a higher standard than our civilian counterparts. And so to that end, um, we've got to hold ourselves accountable. I expect airmen to hold me accountable, and I expect us to hold um, each other accountable to what those standards are. Yeah, it's, it, it goes back to that, uh, that issue that I learned from sort of day one at the Naval Academy back in 1986, attention to detail, right? Every single detail in the military matters so much, especially... Uh, when we're talking about the Air Force, as an example, uh, all of the aviation platforms that you have, the fighters, the bombers, the transports, the you know the, the refueling platforms, a, a minor thing that you don't pay attention to can cause disaster uh, for the uh, aircraft and, and certainly the air crew. Uh, and so those kinds of standards that you want to hold people accountable for, uh, hold them to those highest standards, it really, really matters in the military. Absolutely, John. Like our, we, we entrust today's 19 year olds with multimillion dollar aircraft. Right. Or if you're not working on aircraft with multimillion dollar systems or, you know, what, what you know, you name it, every single um, career field matters, every career. And, you know, I, I tell our airmen also 
I actually don't care if our airmen serve more than their first enlistment, right? Like whether you serve four years, six years, eight years, 28 years, what I ask them to do is to make their organization better, make our Air Force better, hold yourself to those high standards. And then when you take this uniform off, um, you will have learned a discipline and you will have learned work ethic and and um, values that will make you such a great asset back into your hometown. Uh, now, now I, I have actually caught you on C-SPAN uh, testifying before Congress, <laughs> you and your uh, fellow uh, uh, service uh, senior listeners. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's it like testifying before Congress representing the interests of airmen in the United States Air Force? <laughs> No, That's no pressure. No, no pressure. Right? That's a trick question. So, so a couple things, right? It's not fun thinking about like, you know, millions of people could be watching us. So that's not, that's not fun. Um, but it is an opportunity to, to what we shared earlier, represent the force. And I, and when I'm there with my uh, fellow brothers that are, that are serving in the same positions for their service, like we don't just think Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, right? We think, service members, period, um, Department of Defense. And so what a great opportunity to be able to engage at that level to human beings who actually really do care about their force. And I think that's important. But I will tell you that, you know, that, that you know, we, we testify and we do that piece and we speak truth to power. But the real money is made when we're having the meetings afterward and we follow up with those congressional leaders and we get to sit down with them and actually engage in some real meaningful discussion, share truth about, um, uh, you know, the, the aspects of what's going on in the lives of every one of our service members and their families, and then actually get some positive action out of it. That's when um, it's really worth it. So all of the uh, positions that uh, that we fill across the military, those those billets, as we call them, those all have to be uh, authorized and appropriated for with regards to funding uh, through Congress. In, in your discussions, as you know, with with members of Congress, in your thoughts, uh, you know, as as the senior enlisted advisor for the Department of the Air Force and and, uh, and the and the Air Force itself, U.S. Air Force, and we were just talking a bit about you know thinking about the future uh, of the force ten years from now, twenty years from now. Are you getting questions from Congress about? you know, force structure and, and the kind of training and capabilities that we need to have in, in services like the Air Force as we go forward, considering all of these advances in technology? I mean, is, are, are, are members of Congress thinking that far out, or are they mostly thinking about just kind of the next budget year? I think both, right? Okay. Like, I, I think, it, you know, what I've learned about um, the time that I've spent on the Hill um, is they're, ju they're just people, and they all have different <laughs> priorities, um, you know, like as we all do, right? And, but 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 by and large, you know, they're public servants, good human beings. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says, right? But but I get to see it, and so but they all have different priorities. Um, sometimes when they're super focused on maybe like the here and now, or their or their per, perhaps just their area um, of responsibility, what I try to do during my engagements with them is share the bigger strategic picture on why having a strong military matters, right? And that matters, you know, that's, that is global economic impact of why having a strong military matters. And so however the discussions might go and whatever their priorities are, by and large, I also talk about, you know, um, you know the whole of government, a whole of society efforts that we have to have to remain a strong 
country and how their support of that really does matter. Um, you know, whether you serve in Congress, whether you are a community leader um, across America, like all of these things tie into us being a great nation. The military will do their part, but but we can only fuel a military if we have strong communities, if we have strong government, and we are all rowing to the same machine, if you will. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chief Bass, we have to take just a, a short uh, commercial break to recognize our sponsor. Uh, we will be back in about uh, 45 seconds. National right. Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back here at National Security This Week, and our guest is Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass. Uh, so, Chief Bassett, you advise both the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief of Staff of the Air Force on many things. You also implement policies throughout the U.S. Air Force. Could you tell us a little bit about the Chief of Staff of the Air Force's uh, Action Order D, I believe it's called, and what it means for the future of your military service? It, it is. So So when General Brown got in the seat, he rolled out um, an eight-page strategic approach called Accelerate, Change, or Lose. Um, they can't be buzzwords to the force. They really have to just spend some time just digging into that and understanding why we have to accelerate change because losing for our Air Force and our military is not an option. And, and right after that, he rolled out four action orders and he made it easy for the force, A, B, C, and D. Um, a is for airmen, B is for bureaucracy, C is for competition, and D is for design implementation. And, and I spend the majority of my time as the Chief Master of the Air Force in Action Order A, Airmen, you know, focused on how we can take care of the airmen and the families um, that make our Air Force so great. But I get most excited about Action Order D. And the reason why, John, is I've been serving, as, as we mentioned, you know, over 30 years. But Action Order D, in my mind, really calls us to think deeply about if we were to redesign our United States Air Force to be able to compete against any threat, against any potential adversary, would we do it? And how would we design ourselves? The answer is like, yes, we would, we would and we should. You know, we cannot have a model of what the military looked like um, from 30 years ago when we were focused on just air, land, and sea, when in 2023 and, and beyond, We've got to be good in air, land, sea, space, cyber, and information. We have different threats in today's environment. And so we've got to be agile enough to be able to design our force to better compete against any pacing challenge that we have. And that is what I challenge our military with. In fact, when I talk to career field managers across our force, I'm like, we have too many career fields in our Air Force today, and we have some that don't exist. We have to start to tap into what that might look like. And I would argue that even our org structure needs to start to evolve 
um, to be able to, again, be agile enough to be able to compete against any threat that this nation might have. And that sounds like uh, action order B for bureaucracy. Uh, you know, <laughs> ha having served a career in the, in the Navy myself, I know that bureaucracy is the enemy of everything uh, in the services. Yeah. Uh, has General Brown been able to sort of uh, make an impact on uh, cutting through the bureaucracy for the Air Force? He has. He has. I think, you know, we ask him sometimes. I think if he had to grade himself on action order B, he'd probably say C plus. Right. <laughs> like so. So it is really tough now to that end, like some bureaucracy is good. Like we just can't just, you know, shoot off the hip and do things. Some bureaucracy is good to give to some degree some structure into what we're doing. But we can't be OK with good enough and we can't be okay with status quo. And I often share what, you know, our Air Force is 75, almost 76 years old. You know, we can't be okay with, well, we've been great for 75 years and we're gonna be great for the next 75. That is not a true statement. We have, con con we've got to continually um, accelerate change to make sure that we are able to um, be agile enough to respond. So you talk regularly with uh, with airmen across the the the, the force, uh, and certainly uh, civilians and everybody else in the total force. What what are you hearing concerns out there about the ability for the to, for the air force to uh, to take on China, which is really China has become a peer competitor to the United States, I and mean, there's no question about it. Uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force, General Brown, was uh, commander of Pacific Air Forces before he took over as the chief of staff. So he's yeah. he's very familiar with this uh, with this serious uh, strategic challenge that we have today. Uh, I mean, that's that's really I think the major concern for the, mil the U.S. military today across all the services is the challenges uh, imposed by this advancing Chinese military capability, uh, not just in the PLA Navy, but the PLA Air Force, the Army. Uh, the rocket forces, everything that uh, that that the People's Liberation Army in China brings to bear. Uh, wh yeah. where, where do you see Action Order D going with regards to preparing for uh, to deter that that potential fight, or to be ready if it if it actually happens? Well, well, a couple things. You know, this is why I talk about the whole of society efforts, right? Like China's not interested in beating our military; they are interested in becoming the world dominant power by any and all means necessary. But having a strong military absolutely matters. The United States military is the deterring factor. The reason why nobody is doing something today is because of a strong military. We're seeing that play out, by the way, also in Ukraine. You know, why is Ukraine doing so? Because they have a strong enlisted force. And that didn't just happen by accident, by the way. You know, since 1993, we've had state partnerships with the Ukraine um, uh, military. And it's through those partnerships where we've helped uh, partner together and teach mission command, empowerment at the most junior level, and, and the value of an enlisted force. And so the, the uh, PLA does not have that, but they're learning. And so it is important for us as a United States military to stay on top of our game with that respect, right? Um, we know and they know that we are the strongest military in the world because of our enlisted force. And so we've got to continue. We can't take that for granted. We've got to continue to build thinkers and, and leaders who can execute uh, mission command. And so those are the things that we are really focused on um, right now. Yeah, that, that, that piece, the non-commissioned officer piece, this, the enlisted uh, leadership uh, that has really set us apart from uh, so many of the other militaries. If you look at 
the abject failure on the part of the Russian military, out, heavily outnumbering the Ukrainians, they, they don't mm-hmm. really put any investment. They've never really done any investment into creating a, a, a core cadre of, uh, of non-commissioned officer professionals uh, to really teach yeah. and lead uh, the conscripts that they bring in uh, on, a, on a yearly basis to be prepared to, to fight in actual combat uh, situations. Whereas, as you mentioned, the Ukrainians... Uh, did do that. They made that investment and it has made yes. all the difference in their ability to defend their own country uh, and to really push back uh, on, on a Russian force that's significantly larger. Uh, these these lessons, as, as part of Action Order D or is it part, maybe Action Order A, is this this continuous investment that the Air Force is making in training uh, future leaders to become somebody just like you? A- absolutely. You know, I, and I, just one point, John, I would say is China's been watching what is going on in Ukraine and oh, Russia, yeah. <laughs> right? Like like they, they are watching that. And so they are making investments now into their people, into the people who serve. Um, they now have NCO academies, by the way, where they never did before. And so what is an NCO academy to your, to your listeners? Those are non-commissioned officer academies where we train and educate our NCOs um, uh, to, to give them the tools so that they understand how they could be the strongest, best leaders we need them to be. And so um, we continue to make those investments um, internally into the um, Air Force, but we're also doing a lot of that externally as well. Like we have a lot of engagements with our allies and partners. In fact, I just came from an event um, a few weeks ago where I was with NATO um, teammates and I spent some time with about 28 uh, nations focused on leadership development and how we can empower at the most junior level, talking about things like agile combat employment, how we present our forces and and multi-capable airmen, if you will. And so we, we are making we c- will continue to make investments into our force because that is what makes us um, strong. Uh, you and I both uh, spent a little bit of our career paths in the special operations uh, community. Uh, and that is one of those truths uh, for the special ops uh, forces is that uh, people matter more than anything else. Uh, you invest Absolutely. in the people and, and it makes all the difference. Uh, what about the Secretary of the Air Force uh, has this operational imperatives message? Uh, what What is that initiative, and, and how have you seen that uh, impact the total force? Uh, and, and could you may, maybe I, I should use this, ask this question. Do I have that right? What What is the definition of the total force in the Department of the Air Force? Yeah, so our total forces are, you know, the component of the active duty um, REGAF component, as well as the um, reserve uh, teammates, and then our Air National Guard. Um, and then I would also lump in our civilian teammates who are um, huge in into what our um, total force is. And so what I appreciate about Secretary Kendall is he came into the seat and he really um, and and he's pretty passionate um, about China, by the way. He always says, if you want to know what's on my mind, it's three things, China, China, China. (laughs) And um, to to that end, I couldn't be more um, thankful to serve alongside him. But what he did is came in and said, what are some things that are really um, uh, what are, what are some imperatives that we have to do to be able to make sure that we are able to compete 
deter and win against a pacing challenge like China. And so he he really organized what we do, our capabilities, and seven thoughts, if you will. And and anytime you start talking to the force about there's seven operational imperatives, like they get really bored with that and they're like, we don't know what that means. It sounds complicated, but we just want to do our jobs. And so what I share with our airmen is the secretary came in and if you think about the operational imperatives as like, you know, kind of this closet of stuff. And if you go into your closet and you know if if it's like my closet, it's kind of a mess. Some of it's organized maybe not right you don't quite know what you have in this closet well what he did is you know took our closet and organized it into seven different bins and you know what they are and these are the seven operational imperatives the seven things that we must focus on as a department of the air force to make sure that we we deter china that we slow the you know the the fast you know, pace gap from from um, closing, right? Like these are the things we have to focus on. And to that end, that is really where we have focused on um, as it relates to our operational imperatives, a space order of battle, you know, um, ABMS, the next generation air dominance systems, um, you know, targeting, resilient basing, the, you know, um, long range um, strike family of systems and, and readiness. So we focused ourselves on that to stay focused on war fighting period. And, and you know, you're, you're the chief master sergeant in the Air Force. I, I was uh, just a lowly commander in the United States Navy, but both of us recognize that if, uh, if we can't deter China and there winds up being a fight with China, that, that's really our two services that are going to wind up carrying that fight uh, to, to, de to defeat China. Uh, we're really not going to do a land invasion of, of mainland China. I just I can't even fathom how, how why that would ever come to be. So our two services really have to think through what these challenges are based on China's uh, advances in their technology challenges, what we see them practicing for. And, and then we got to think out of the box and think of ways how we can uh, defeat them, because if we do have to fight them, it would be in their front yard. And it's a long way from home for us. Absolutely. So yeah. those, those operational uh, it, imperatives probably uh, play right into that based on what I uh, heard you outline. Absolutely. And then, you know, we rolled out our Air Force future operating concept, right, because we absolutely know today, to your point, you know, on the Air Force side and, and, and perhaps the Navy as well, we are going to have to um, we'll, we'll have to fight to get in the air. Like for the first time ever, right? Like we're going to have to really be thoughtful in the six fights. And, you know, that's, you know, fighting to get into theater, fighting to get in the air, fighting to maintain your superiority, to deny adversary um, objectives. And so, and fight to be able to continue to sustain. And so, um, again, um, those are the things we're thinking about. Yeah, the joint force of the U.S. Uh, military has enjoyed really air supremacy in, in uh, every conflict we've been in. Uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the, you know, the first Gulf War being uh, the first real test of that force. Uh, in this case, with China, we will struggle <laughs> to achieve air superiority, just basic air superiority. And that will probably only be able to hold that for a certain period of time and, unless we uh, are really successful in downing uh, PLA Air Force uh, assets. Uh, for our audience, you're, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Joanne Bass, who is currently the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, and we're discussing military leadership, among many other topics. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Chief Bass, I've mentioned you serve as advisor to the Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force, uh, General Charles Brown. 
Uh, he's a career fighter pilot. He commanded U.S. Air Forces Central in the Central Command Theater. He also served as commander of the Pacific Air Forces, a, a critical component command, uh, under the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, uh, the theater combatant commander, and a command that's quite focused on the rising threat from the People's Liberation Army in the People's Republic of China. He's also been nominated to become the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a role which denotes the highest-ranking member in the U.S. military. That person in that position serves as the principal military advisor to the President of the United States and to the Secretary of Defense, and he or she also advises the National Security Council. What can the nation expect from General C.Q. Brown, Jr. as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Absolutely. I was waiting for you to press the little button where people could hand clap, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be more excited for... Um, for this and 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 very hopeful for confirmation but that said general brown is the right leader at the right time at the right place to build the military that our nation is going to need um you know i i have the pleasure of of being able to watch him um, firsthand um and his very thoughtful understanding of of warfare um of deterrence um, and, and again, just his steadfastness, right? He, in, in, in understanding of all theaters, I think he, he is going to um, be the, the change agent that our Air Force and, and Space Force and Marine Corps and Army and um, Navy and, um, is going to need to be able to lead us um, in a critical time. Uh, what, what do you, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to speak for him specifically, but if we translate what he's done as chief of staff of the Air Force in the way of uh, moving uh, the Air Force forward, uh, what do you think he's going to focus on priorities-wise as uh, advisor to the president and to the Secretary of Defense uh, once he's confirmed as chairman? Uh, he, he doesn't really command forces in that role, but he certainly has a, a strong role to play in advising uh, the commander-in-chief and the Secretary of Defense, as well as working closely uh, with the other uh, uh, joint chiefs. Yeah, I think he'll be focused on integration. Um, and, and really, that is integrating all the capabilities that the joint force brings to bear, um, along with um, the integration by design of our allies and our partners as well. And so that's where um, I would suspect that uh, my boss it w will remain focused as the chairman. Yeah, that's sort of a critical role as uh, commander of uh, Central Air Forces, uh, CENTAF, I think is uh, is the term that's used. That's There's a lot of uh, allied uh, air power there in the air tasking order that flies on a regular basis. Same thing with uh, his service as commander of the Pacific Air Forces, uh, PACAF uh, is the title there. Uh, it's going to be critical, especially as we move forward with uh, bringing in Finland now as a full member of NATO, and, and hopefully Sweden gets... Uh, uh, confirmed here shortly. Uh, is, his role as the chairman, because he understands this vital necessity of bringing allies uh, to the table and, and, and integrating them, uh, do you see him spending a lot of time heading over to to, to Europe uh, to help work with uh, the, the, the NATO construct? Yeah. Um, you know, I can't speak to that and, and where he will, you know, what what his travel might be like. But what I will say is that he already has very strong relationships with many of our allies and partners, right? And and those relationships started early through professional military education, um, and 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 throughout his 
his very rich career that he's had. And, and, you know, General Brown always talks about you never want to cold call somebody. You want to have a relationship with that person. And so I've been able to see his interactions with fellow air chiefs um, across the globe. Um, and, and so to that end, I think um, he, he's already got those relationships built, you know, whether it's in um, Europe and, and Pacific and, and um, South America, like those relationships are already there. And, and that's something that he spends a lot of time doing. It's certainly something that I spend a lot of time doing as well, um, spending time with the chief master surgeons of the Air Forces from nations across the globe, because it's really through those re partnered um, relationships that, um, you know, global peace can can happen. Now, that goes back to one of those other truths that you and I both learned serving in the special operations community is that you cannot surge trust. That has to be built over a long period of time. You can surge forces, <laughs> you can surge money, <laughs> you can do all kinds of things, but you cannot surge trust. That has to be built up over a long period of time. Uh, Chief Bass, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, I mentioned earlier in our show I wanted to touch base on uh, the U.S. Space Force. So just a few years ago, the Space Force was created, uh, and the Space Force as a military service resides inside the Department of the Air Force. Uh, what interaction do you have as the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force with uh, the the Space Force staff? How much integration uh, and discussion do you have with your counterparts over in your sister service? So quite a bit, you know, uh, one, because they're part of the Department of the Air Force, uh, but two, they're right down the hall. And so, <laughs> you know, he, he, here in the Pentagon, um, you know, they're right down the hall. But most of the folks who are serving the Space Force, not uh, most right now, but it won't be this way all the time, were prior airmen. And so my counterpart, the Chief Master Sergeant of the Space Force, the current one, we've, you know, we kind of grew up together. And so we know each other as brother and sister in arms and, and it's been great. And and the um, the number two Chief Master Sergeant of the Space Force and I grew up together as well. And when he got named, I couldn't have been more excited. Um, and so we have strong relationships already. And, uh, you know, Space Force is going to count on the U.S. Air Force to be able to take care of all things so that they can focus on um, their primary mission and operations, which is in space. And so, you know, that we will cover down on all of the uh, base operating support stuff so that they can focus on the things that they need to do. And so we have we have an integrated relationship that is strong, always will be. Um, I actually love watching the Space Force, by the way, um, at scale. I feel like they're kind of our little brother, little sister, if you will. Um, they're, they're, you know, out of their terrible twos. and um, But there is still, we, we tease them because we're like, you guys are like a teenager, you know, as a force. Like, you want to be independent, but you love to come to mom and dad for money. So anyway, so sometimes we joke around like that. But I, I, I couldn't be a bigger fan of the Space Force. And, and here's why. If we lose in space... If the United States, like writ large, loses in space, we lose, period. And so having a U.S. Space Force is critical to our nation's defense. And so while we might joke around, like I am the biggest fan and cheerleader of the U.S. Space Force and and and, and our guardians who, who do that job 24-7, by the way, uh, you know, 24-7. And you can thank the Space Force for every single person who's listening to this um, podcast. You can thank the Space Force for everybody who used their GPS to get to work, you know, every day. 
That is the United States Space Force. And so again, um, it matters to national defense um, to have a strong space force. For, so thanks to everybody who, who continue to support our military. Uh, we've we've been lucky enough to have a couple of guests on the show uh, last year specifically who uh, were senior leaders in the Space Force, and they were able to tell us a little bit about how the Space Force is constructed. Uh, you know, you, you you and I have spent careers in in the traditional military forces. I think it's safe to say that the way the Space Force has been constructed. Uh, the terms it's that are used in, you know, calling it a, a delta uh, as one of their organizational constructs. This is revolutionary thinking. I mean, it's it's really sure. out of the box thinking, uh, and, and I'm I'm very excited to see where the space space force goes as it continues to develop, both in technology and capabilities and and organizational structure. And I know, I guess it was it's maybe just been about a year uh, that they've had their own uh, boot camp to bring people into the space force. Uh, graduated uh, uh, guardians out of the out of the boot camp, and that they have their own commissioning uh, programs now uh, for ki- for young uh, men and women coming out of uh, the ROTC programs uh, as well. It, this is all revolutionary stuff. Uh, like you said, it's 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 new. Uh, they're still relatively small. They're growing, uh, but they really are an impressive uh, service uh, in the U.S. military. Yeah, and and I'll tell you, as an Air Force, we are very much paying attention to what the Space Force is doing because um, they can probably, you know, bypass some of the Action Order B bureaucracy that we talk about, and they're able to get after Action Order D to be able to design themselves in a way to be able to get after their warfighting mission. Yeah, that that's a great point, uh, Chief Bass. We're down to just about uh, seven minutes left in the show. Uh, I really love to give my guests uh, sort of the the final word. Uh, I can give you probably four or five minutes if you're if you wish. Uh, what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners about the U.S. Air Force, uh, the overall U.S. military, uh, American national security challenges and opportunities, uh, or or the men and women in the Air Force, if that's what you want to talk about? Uh, the the floor is yours, Chief. Well, that's a lot to maybe try to pack in in three minutes or four, or, or less. And, um, you know, one, John, thank you for allowing me to spend some time on here. And big thanks to your listeners to, for devoting time on something that's super important, which is our nation's security. What I would love to just, um, you know, leave with you is your military, whichever service, is, is the most lethal capable military in the world because of the people, right? Like, so most educated, most empowered, enlisted force in history. That is, that's what's who is serving in your military. And oh, by the way, only 1% serves and wears this uniform. So potentially 99% of Americans do not truly know what the military does for the nation, but they appreciate it on the 4th of July or on Memorial Day or Veterans Day, right? You know, you know, let me just thank somebody real quick, you know, but I, what I would say is you're, you are free and you can sleep well at night because you have a strong military, a strong 1%. Um, and, and, and every day our, our service members are ready at a, at a moment's notice to answer our nation's call. The other thing that I would share is we as a military are absolutely dealing with some challenges as it relates to recruiting, right? And, and that is, to me, a larger uh, national issue that everybody probably, moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, teachers need to have this discussion in schools 
and anywhere that they can. And it's not necessarily just serving in the military, but we need Americans to want to serve, period, right? Like serve in your community, serve in America, serve in the military, your your police force, your firefighters, the Peace Corps. So we, we, we just need to, I think, have some really thoughtful discussions with, with today's children on the goodness of serving. Um, and so to that, I would say like the Air Force is hiring. And so if you have, if you have um, capable, smart um, uh, people who want to serve in the military, like send them to the U.S. Air Force, tell them that Joe Bass sent them. Um, and, and again, like just, you know, like my dad said, four years in the military never hurt anybody. In fact, you're going to get that person back and they're going to be way more wiser and brighter and more disciplined and, and ready to take on any challenge that you will. And they may in fact be like me where after four years, they're like, hmm, you know, let me do four more quick years. And then after eight years, like, let me, let me just make a career out of it. So you never know, but, but thank you for, um, you know, thank you for supporting the military. Thanks for the work that you do on here, John, and, and big thanks to your listeners for uh, taking care of their service members. Uh, Chief Bass, are there any uh, websites or other resources that you'd like to guide listeners to so they can learn a little bit more about uh, the Department of the Air Force or Air Force recruiting or any other topics that uh, you think are important for people to understand with regards to American national security? Absolutely. So I'm pretty sure like AF.mil, you can learn a lot of information by us.af.mil. If you just, but I'm just going to tell everybody, just go to one place. Like if you Google the United States Air Force, you're going to find a whole lot of information. What, what, if you Google, for instance, um, you know, accelerate, change, or lose, or the action orders, or anything that we talked about, the operational imperatives, you will see um, some, uh, you know, some sites that have that. If I can leave you with one thing that I'd really appreciate your audience to Google, and that is a um, uh, two or three page um, um, uh, talking paper that I wrote on regarding information warfare, and it's called A New Kind of War. And so with Air University, I um, penned an article called A New Kind of War, and it speaks to preparing us mentally on this information um, age that we find ourselves in. Because as I mentioned before, if, if our adversaries can defeat us in information, in cyber, in space, they win. And so if you'll just... Um, Google that, and and I'd love your feedback. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so please share with me um, how that is. And you do have some fantastic posts on LinkedIn. I'm glad we connected uh, a while back. Uh, That brings us to the end of our show for this week. Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thanks, John. Folks, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. when we'll cover Iran. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. Carlos Correa, there's his 
signature moment, biggest swing as a twin. That's Carlos Correa, two-time All-Star and a superhero movie buff. The shortstop Correa, a Superman dive. Oh, what a defensive play that was. Which totally makes sense. Bring your group of 20 or more to enjoy the Target Field experience and receive a special ticket discount and more. Get your tickets at twins.com slash groups. 95.1. The One.